In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. My guest today has graced some of the world's most famous stages, a veteran of the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and the illustrious Royal Shakespeare Company. He played Sebastian in Twelfth Night at the Royal Court, Andrew in Manhattan Theatre Club's production of In Celebration, Johnny in Holiday at the Old Vic, and Jimmy in Look Back in Anger at the Roundabout. That's but a small sample of his many credits. It's no understatement to say that his talent and his range are remarkable. Yet most audiences around the world know him best for a single iconic character. It was the next day, brothers, and I had truly done my best morning and afternoon to play it their way and sit like a horror show cooperative malchick in the chair of torture while they flashed nasty bits of ultraviolence on the screen. Though not on the soundtrack, my brothers, the only sound being music. Then I noticed in all my pain and sickness what music it was that like cracked and boomed. It was Ludwig van. Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement. That is the incomparable Malcolm McDowell playing Alex DeLarge, the anti-heroic criminal-turned-victim in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. That groundbreaking film premiered some 50 years ago, and McDowell's performance in it is as riveting today as it was then. Though Clockwork made McDowell famous, it was in fact the director Lindsay Anderson, McDowell's lifelong friend and surrogate father, who got him started in movies when he cast young Malcolm as the lead in the award-winning film, If. Yet for all his success, Malcolm McDowell did not grow up with acting in mind. It's so nice to see you. God. Oh, you too. Before we get to, you know, the obvious things, when you grew up, because when you first start making films, and I want to talk about your career before you meet Lindsay Anderson, before you make films and so forth, mm -hmm. what kind of a kid were you in terms of, were you like a rough and tumble roughhouse kid on a soccer field or a rugby field? Yes. So you were a tough guy. My father, who ran a hotel and pubs and, you know, establishments where you could get drunk very easily, he sent me to a, we call in England a public school. You would call a private school. You have to pay, in other words. Right. And it's a boarding school. So because I was disruptive, I was a subversive child, and so 
he just thought for my own salvation, and actually, I thank God he did. He sent me to a school where the headmaster was in love with the theater. So uh, the acting thing started when I was 11 at school with this wonderful man, Mr. L. F. Baker, Lance Fag, F-A-G-G, Baker. No. Yeah. And he, I don't know, it's an old English family name. And his brother was the Air Chief Marshal of the Royal Air Force, Sir John Baker, who I used to go cut his lawn and get afternoon tea where I first tasted Lapsang Souchong. I'm going, what is this? <laughs> What's this perfume in the tea? No more Prince of Wales for me. <laughs> exactly. No more Earl Grey for me. PG tips. Yes, PG, PG tips. tips for me. Yeah. When you say, at least in, in your father's eyes, uh, it sounds that you were a subversive child. How did that manifest itself? Well, the head, uh, you know, this Mr. Baker said to my father that um, after I'd been there a year, he said, yes, well, Malcolm is very naughty, <laughs> but he's not malicious. Now, were you close to your dad? No. My father was an alcoholic. I mean, I loved him in many ways, but the alcoholism just, towards the end of his life, I just figure, hey, come on, Dad, let's go down the pub. I'll buy you a drink. You know, it, you know he just couldn't get off it. Did he live to see your success? Yes. Yes, he did. He was actually a driving instructor at the time. And I still have these people in Philadelphia that write, I was, you know, taught by your dad, you know. And, of course, he'd always say, uh, pull over here. I'm just going to pop into this pub. I've got to call my son in America. And, of course, <laughs> he would just go in and order a quick, you know, uh, gin and tonic or something. Now, when you leave, Mr. Baker, when you leave his school, yeah. where do you go for your training? I went back to Liverpool and I had this girlfriend who was taking elocution lessons because she was a receptionist. She uh, took me to this lovely lady called Mrs. Harold Ackley. And I went to meet with her. She was 82, blind as a bat, very sweet, charming, charismatic. I mean, I just listened to her, pay my 10 shillings an hour. And just basically listen to her talk about her time as being um, in a silent screen star, you know. She said, look, you've got a good voice. You could probably be an actor. Why don't you take this Lambda exams, you know, and you can then teach acting. I went, good God, I, I don't know anything about it. Of course, I knew a bit from school because I'd played all the great parts in Shakespeare before I left school. So I did these, I won a gold medal. Then I went down to London and did an audition at Lambda and uh, they gave me an associateship of Lambda. So one of the judges there offered me a job in repertory theater, which I leapt at. And did you sing? No, not then. Because for people who don't know, Lambda is the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Yeah. No singing for you, no singing. No, at the time, I think I was there. Or I, I didn't go there. I just went into the theater and did my pieces, the audition pieces. And I was offered a job to go to Shanklin in the Isle of Wight in a repertory theater for the summer season. And you do one play every week, a new play. So you'd had four plays in your head. They were all Agatha Christie, you know, really horrendous things. 
You were at Lambda for two years? The associate's program was two no, years? No, 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 no. Uh, I didn't go to Lambda. I was just, I just won their associateship. Got it. And between that time, between the time when you are engaging, you know, Ibsen on the Isle of Wight, four shows in your head at the same time, and you're going to meet Lindsay Anderson when you're 24, 25 years old. That was down the line, four years. Yeah, down the line. Not only what were you doing in those intervening years, you were, you were at the RSC, correct? For a little while? Yes, well, I soon got fed up with this weekly rep. So I figured I wanted to get to the Royal Shakespeare Company. So I went to this old actor who taught auditions because I figured, you know, I never get past the damned audition. I, so I know I can play the part, but I can't convince them. So I went to somebody that knew how to actually do auditions. And he found me a piece of Shakespeare that was so out of the run of the mill stuff. It was the prologue to Henry VIII. I don't even know whether Shakespeare really wrote this play or not. But anyway, I'll never forget the first line was, I come no more to make you laugh. I don't remember anything else about it, except that, of course, they hadn't heard the piece. And so, you know, most people were doing to be or not to be, or, you know, once more until the brief. Yes. So they hadn't heard this, kept them awake. They actually offered me a season. So I went there and I pretty much really hated it. Why? Well, I found the stuff that they were doing to be, you know, even in my young youth as a, a young actor, I, I, I could uh, distinguish pretentious behavior. Who was running the show there then? Uh, Peter Hall, you know, an extraordinary director, really, uh, through the years, but he was a very young man. I mean, it's basically, you know, sex, booze, gambling, the whole season. So we would literally go to the Dirty Duck pub and start gambling. This actor from Ireland, Godfrey Quigley, he actually played the priest in Clockwork Orange. <laughs> he was a wonderful guy. The prison priest. Yeah, he's a wonderful actor, wonderful. He was playing, you know, good parts to that. I was playing lousy parts. Well, the, the, the priest, so people realize, for people who, like me, are clockwork freaks, and we'll do our clockwork thing in a, in a bit, but the moment when Alex is envisioning himself pitching right in to the crucifixion. Yeah. I'm bidding myself pitching right in, or whatever the words are. That's the priest who comes and interrupts your dream state. That's right. My son, he says, the big, yeah, big husky exactly. Guy. Big Wonderful Irish, you know. My um, boy, he says, my boy. Yeah. He invented this gambling game, <laughs> which you, you turn these handles, you have these little toy horses. It was such a stupid game. Right. But we ended up literally, I think I was two and a half months uh, behind on my, I owed him everything from my uh, checks. Not that I was getting very much, but um, in those days... And he, I'd see him backstage and he'd go, Malcolm, where you owe me? I went, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm getting that together. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry, Godfrey. It's coming. <laughs> you weren't sure if you wanted to go on another day in that condition. But let me just say that other people I've spoken to, uh, older than you, different generation, but you know, when I talked to Tony Hopkins and he talked about being at the National and always dutifully performing in the British theater and working at the feet of Olivier, so to speak, 
not just dreaming, but knowing he was going to get the fuck out of there. He said he couldn't get away from England fast enough. Yeah. And leave behind, you know, that great tradition of that. Did you feel the same way? I knew that I did not want to be exclusively a stage actor. Right. In fact, when I gave my resignation to Peter Hall, and he looked at me and he goes, you don't want to come back? I went, no. No, he goes, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm, I'm going into film. He looked at me and went, good luck. Yes. <laughs> Real condescending. It was fun when I saw him a couple of years later. In the RSC, were there people you were around who, that you idolized? Were there actors you got to be, even just be around them, who you loved? Yeah. The number one, well, beside David Warner, who, right. who was a friend, but someone that I really idolized, who wasn't necessarily a friend, was Ian Holm. Ah. And Ian Holm gave, I think, one of the greatest performances I've still ever seen. And I was actually in the play with him. It was uh, Henry V. Right. And, you know, Ian was only five foot two or something. He was tiny. The power of this actor was extraordinary. And, you know, he used to invite me out to go play tennis. A couple of us, actually, go play tennis. Because he'd rented this place that had a grass tennis court. And every Sunday we'd go and you know, kind of have doubles matches and then have cream tea. I, I, I just loved this man so much. And, and when I wasn't on stage, I would go and I had a place in the wings to go watch him. And I think I watched him, you know, for nine months. Most nights. Yeah, yeah. I, when I did a play, the great, great black comic actor, I mean, just the ceaselessly intoxicating Joe Mahar, who owned all the roles in Orton that he played. Joe yeah. was Irish, but raised in England and, and, and trained in England. And my first Broadway show was in 1986. I did Loot. Oh, my God. I love that play. And, you know, he got put in prison for defacing Bibles. Yeah. In the library. Yeah, and books. And I'm yeah. drawing cocks all over him and God knows what graffiti. <laughs> and he was caught. <laughs> Actor Malcolm McDowell. Another actor who has moved effortlessly from stage to film and back is Kevin Klein. I interviewed Klein live at the Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey, where we talked about his great film career. Actually, Merrill was a tremendous help. I remember once I was making a huge meal out of just, I had to give Stingo the character's name. I had to give him some money because he'd been robbed. And I was doing, you know, you're a writer, you need this money, and blah, blah, blah. And I was just emoting. And she said, just give him money. <laughs> <laughs> to listen to my full episode with Kevin Klein, go to our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, we get a glimpse into his unique relationship with the great director, Lindsay Anderson. McDowell says they were like a married couple with all of the ups and downs and tells us what he learned from Anderson about acting, life, and the importance of not imitating Laurence Olivier. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, 
low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com FITS. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. We're speaking today with actor Malcolm McDowell. Now, where does Lindsay Anderson find you? Where does he find you? Well, you know, it's the, my agent called to say, oh, got to go. I was actually rehearsing at the Royal Court doing um, Twelfth Night, a modern dress version at the Royal Court, you know, very trendy and all that. So in the middle of the rehearsal, my agent said, go quickly, get to this theater where there's a director, you know, I want you to meet because he's doing this film. I said, what kind of film? Oh, I don't know. We don't know what kind of film. Anyway, so I go there and um, I was late. They were just about packing up to go to lunch. And I went, I'm sorry, I, I, I came on, you know, to the stage. I said, sorry, I, I've been stuck rehearsing. They wouldn't let me go. And so he jumped up on the stage and was talking. He said, you know, I'm Lindsay. And I said, oh, hello. He said, well, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm doing a Twelfth Night at the Royal Court. It's a, a modern dress version. And Lindsay looked at me and he went, oh, sounds awful. <laughs> I went, well, and look, I mean, it's not awful. I mean, I'm, you know, very happy to be working at the Royal Court, a great theatre, supposedly, but it is sort of, actually, to be honest, it is awful. It's very pretentious. These people, I mean, who the, they, they think they are? They've got their noses up their asses, you know. <laughs> and so we spend the next 20 minutes ragging on all the people and gossiping about the Royal Court. Then there's an impasse, and he just says to me... Um, of course, you do realize, Malcolm, that I'm a director of the Royal Court. I went, what? Oh, no. I, I said, well, I suppose I'm not going to get this part then, am I? He said, not necessarily. So that was it. I read the scene very badly, I think. But he called me back in in two weeks' time for a kind of final audition. And I met this girl who I was... I, you know, I said, oh, I thought we would, I thought it was about a boys' school. 
He went, well, there's other elements, you know, and you're going to be playing with this girl. And I looked over and instantly fell in love with this girl who I thought was one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. She actually played the part, and her name was Christine Noonan. And we had this scene now. So I kept looking at her thinking, oh, my God, this is fantastic. This is going to be fun. If I, I got to get this. So I read the thing, and it says, Mick grabs hold of girl, kisses her passionately. And it was supposed to be in the set of a coffee bar. And I pulled her over a, a table that was purporting to be the counter and, you know, kissed her. But our lips, teeth banged together. There was blood. And um, suddenly I find myself sitting on the floor. I hadn't read the next line, which was, girl savagely slaps Mick. But apparently she didn't slap me. She reared up a punch and punched me so hard that I literally went down, I mean, like, boom, out for the count. Yeah. And I sort of sat there for days because, you know, my ears were ringing and, and I was started to tear up. I was just, like, basically crying <laughs> like a yeah. baby. Overwhelmed. Yeah. I was so humiliated that I got up and I went, the script, I don't know what happened to the script, and it was electric. I mean, it really was. I'll never forget the moment. You know, you rarely get moments like that that was sort of just came out of nothing. Yes, yes. And eventually Lindsay said, okay, thank you. And the writer jumped up and he goes, we found our Mick. <laughs> you know? And of course, Lindsay said, shut up, David. That's not what we do. You know, we will call his agent and do it in the correct way. Now sit down and shut up. But if you get back to Anderson, I just want to say that from what I've read, I mean, you did a one-man show where you play Anderson. Yeah. And Anderson, who embody had Embody him. Well, you embody him. And Lindsay Anderson is a famous director, and those films are famous films. Mm -hmm. If and Oh Lucky Man and so forth, and he had a great career. But he's not Stanley. No. You didn't decide to embody Stanley on stage. And my point is, is that was Lindsay Anderson more of an actor's director than Stanley? Way more. Yeah. I mean... It's obvious, I think, from Stanley's movies that really he's not really an actor's director. But, you know, listen, why should he be? I mean, he had, in the main, a fear of actors. And I say a fear because it was the one element he couldn't control. Mm -hmm. And he was always obsessed with, now we're on Stanley. But I'll, I'll get to him in a minute. Let me just say that Lindsay Anderson, yeah. I, the reason I did a one-man show about him because he, is, he has so much complexities as a human being and as an artist that he meant so much to me, you know, because it was my first movie. And it was literally your first movie meeting, not even small roles before yeah. this. This was your first no. time on a movie set. Yeah. I want you yeah. to talk about that. What was it like? Well, you know, I'd done television, so right. I knew what a camera was. So you'd done some TV. I knew what I could do and what I couldn't do. And I knew that it was an internal process. Whereas most actors who are trained, of course, in England, it's very external, it, you know, not now, but in those days, there were no film actors. And also film actors were looked on as scum. Yeah, sellouts. I mean, oh, you, you're doing it just for the rent, are you? And, and I know um, Michael Caine had that 
all his whole life, you know, them going, but yes, but Michael, why don't you do something in the theater? Yes. And go, well, why the fuck should I? Yeah. You know? when, when are we going to see your Lear, Michael? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be interesting. But um, <laughs> anyway, but Lindsay, you know, he was a curmudgeon. He was a, my relationship with him was um, like a marriage almost in that it was huge rows, big makeup. I mean, he was just, that's just the way it was. He really taught me so much about just life and uh, being an actor and what it meant and the responsibility that you had, you know, to be a leading actor. And it's not just, you know, just doing the part. It's way more than that. He meant so much to me, you know, that, uh, you know, when he died, it was uh, the saddest, one of the saddest days of my life. Way more affected me than my father, you know. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, with Anderson, when you do the film and the film is over, I mean, you, you do three films in a row. Mm. After you do If, you did which film? I did um, a movie um, called Figures in the Landscape, directed by Joe Losey. Right. And it only had two actors in it, the other one being Robert Shaw. That's a whole chapter in itself right figures in a landscape and raging moon was another film you did before you wind up with uh, stanley but my point is is that whether it's if clockwork eventually caligula with some of the content these are films where you wonder could these films even get made today i mean you know if is very violent in the end yeah and the kind of swiftian satire of yeah. clockwork and its attitude towards sex and violence which you know never bothered me. I mean, Clockwork Orange is a movie to me where uh, I was with a friend of mine. We were 18 years old and it was in a revival house or was showing somewhere in a theater uh, in the heart of residential Long Island where I grew up. And my friend and I, we both smoked a joint like the size of a flashlight. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we smoked on. this joint and we go in and we sit down and the, ep and the crushing episodic rhythms of Clockwork like when you get to certain points, you go, certainly this has to be the end of the movie. This is it. It's over. And then all of a sudden yeah. they go, and, then, and the film is kind of looking at you going, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> and then he does this, and then he goes here, and now yeah. they're going to drown him in the trough. Here he meets the boys again, and yeah. he's going to stick his head in the trough. But my point is, is that when you saw If, when you first saw the film after you were finished, when it was screened for you, what were your yeah. thoughts? What did you think? I was in... Utter shock, really, because in those days it took almost a year to edit the thing. Yeah. You know, this is before all those fancy editing systems. So they do it literally on a moviola with chalk. On a steam, you know, steam back. Before steam back. Before steam Moviola <laughs> with a pedal. And you, yeah, right. you, so it took nine months and I had no idea. They'd done a screening, which I wasn't invited to, and it was for sort of public opinion people that kind of were going to talk about it, supposedly. So when I saw it, of course, you know, I saw it from a very different perspective. I mean, I'd come out of the thing and I'd go, why did you leave that shot in where I had my tongue hanging out? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go, it's charming, don't worry. I went, no, it's horrible. I can't even watch that damn movie again. You know, so. <laughs> and then we went to the Cannes Film Festival which was mind-blowing, because I had no idea about any of it. And, of course, um, you know, that it won the grand prize. It won. 
And I was thrilled for Lindsay because he put so much, you know, he was a critic of this magazine called Sequence, and it was a brilliantly, highly, a sort of intellectual film magazine where yeah. film was considered art. Yeah, like Kaye. Yeah. He wrote this wonderful essay about why film should be considered an art and not only a, an entertainment. And the thing was, Lindsay was a great theater director. I mean, he only made, what, five movies or something. But yes, but he was always directing one of David Story's plays. I mean, they were literally the great plays of that, the 70s and 80s. But he did, I think, at least 10 or 12 of David Story's plays, including The Changing Room and all these great In Celebration, which um, Alan Bates did in London and I did it in New York at the Manhattan Theatre Club. In the wake of all your success with If and you win the prize at Cannes, did Lindsay try to get you to come back to the theatre with him? Did he try to cajole you into no, doing a play? No, no, <laughs> no. No. He wouldn't bother. He'd say to me things like... Um, you're a very Brechtian actor, aren't you? And I go, well, if you say so, what exactly are you referring to? And he'd say, because I noticed that sometimes you're telling the audience, you're showing them that you're acting this, but you're saying, but you're going to believe me anyway. Wow. I went, that's very interesting. So um, he'd say things like that to me, you know, which I hadn't got a clue, really. What it, I went to see Olivier do um, <clears throat> one of the O'Neill plays that went on for seven hours. But uh, Olivier, I went to see, I mean, we were shooting Oh Lucky Man. And I noticed the way Olivier got a round of applause just by crossing his legs on a sofa. He did it in such a way he got a standing ovation. And I, I'm thinking to myself, God, that's so brave, you know, to do that. So we're shooting a scene in Oh Lucky Man, and I did something completely off the wall. And Lindsay goes, cut, what on earth are you doing? And I went, he goes, I don't even tell me. I know what this is. This is because you've seen Lawrence Olivia, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I went, well, I thought it would be more interesting, you know, to try and... Just liven up this. He goes, Malcolm, just do what you're supposed to do. That's funny. And let's have none of that nonsense. I went, okay, okay. <laughs> That's funny. I did a performance of a play. I did Equus out yeah. here on Long Island at the Bay Street Theater. And Schaffer right. was alive and attended all of the rehearsals. And I sat down with him and I said, do you think I should go to Lincoln Center Library and watch the original performance, which was taped? Schaffer says to me, oh, I don't know, Alec, if you should bother going to see the recording. He said, none of them wanted to be recorded. He said, Roberta Maxwell refused to come to work and be videotaped in the nude for the nude scene. So they brought on her understudy. And Tony and Peter didn't want to be recorded. So Tony did the entire performance doing an impersonation of Larry Olivier. Yeah. And he said, and Peter changed the dialect and made him a boy from the North Country and completely changed everything. And he said, the performance that's recorded for posterity at Lincoln Center, he said, it isn't at all the one from the production. Then he took a long pause and looked at me and said, naughty boys, very naughty boys. <laughs> and yeah. sure enough, I go see it. And there's Tony saying all his lines like this and this and this oh, and yeah. this and doing Olivier. 
course. Anyway, I would find myself in my acting. I thought, my God, who, who is in my head? Like I'm trying to channel. Like I think I'm getting tricked into doing a voice here. Am I, who am I, Gable? Am I Brando? Wait, what? There's something beating on the door in my head that I got to get rid of and just try to mm -hmm. you make, it, make it my own. But when you arrive, I want to get to Kubrick. When you arrive on the set to shoot that film, had you read Burgess's book? Oh, yes. Stanley called me up, and I was shooting out in Boreham Woods with Brian Forbes. So uh, I was going out close to his house. He lived out there. He said, would I come meet him at, at lunchtime? I went, sure. So I went to see him. We, he was, um, you know, very pleasant, very nice, and all the rest of it. But just chit-chat, you know. And at the end, I said, look, Stanley, I've got to get back. Um, I've got to get into makeup. But was there anything you particularly wanted to talk to me about? Um, thrilled, of course, to meet you. And <laughs> he said, yeah, there's a book I'm thinking of. And um, he said, oh, what's the book? And I could see he didn't want to tell me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the one who's going to be starring in this movie, and he didn't even want to tell me yeah. what the book was called. And that was just his nature. You know, yeah. that was just the way he was. Yeah. And he said, read the book. Have you heard of it? I went, no. He went, really? It's a cult book. I went, no, sorry. He said, read it and call me. So I started reading this book and I found it a real struggle to get through the first time. And I thought, oh my God, they can't make a film of this. I mean, how are they going to do? And then I read it again. And the words, the language became a little more... A glossary. Yeah, I was going back. The first time you read it, you got to go back to the glossary. Yeah, all the time. But I felt that I knew it pretty well. And I said to myself, holy God, this could be an amazing movie. I mean, forget the Kubrick element, just on the book. And then I read it a third time before I called it. And this time I knew that this was one hell of a part. So I called him. I said, I read that book. Now, this a week had gone past. He thought I was going to call him the next day. And he goes, well, uh, I said, look, I was very thorough. I read it three times. I wanted to make sure that when I spoke to you, I could do so with a certain amount of command of the material. Now, in the meantime, I had met Ian Holm. I said, Ian, God, how nice. I hadn't seen him for years. He said, well, what are you doing? And I went, well, I'm doing this thing with Stanley Kubrick, you know. And I saw him kind of, I said, what? He goes, watch that bastard. I went, really? Why? What, what? He goes, that son of a bitch offered me Napoleon. He said, I was out to his house for 18 months. I was the best friends of the family, the whole deal. And then suddenly I couldn't get him on the phone. I went, oh my God, you're kidding. So when I had this call with Kubrick, I had this information because it happened just a couple of days before. So I said to Stanley, are you offering me the part? And there was a silence. And he said, yes. I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> because I didn't realize, I was a young kid. Yeah. I didn't know that you don't ask great directors, stuff like that. Let's have no Ian Holm here, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the incredible Malcolm McDowell. If you like Here's the Thing, don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend. 
You can subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Malcolm tells us how Alex DeLarge came by his iconic look, that is, codpiece over trousers and such long, long eyelashes, and talks about some more recent projects playing a serial killer in the film Ivalenko, a talent agent in HBO's Entourage, and a retired orchestra conductor in Mozart in the Jungle on Amazon. That's all after the break. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $899. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. This episode is brought to you by Simply by Frito-Lay. These days, you have a lot going on. But now, thanks to Simply by Frito-Lay, you have one less thing to worry about. So kick back and enjoy your favorite Frito-Lay snacks with ingredients to feel good about, like Simply Blue Corn Tostitos, Sea Salted Ruffles, and even White Cheddar Cheetos Puffs, all made with no artificial colors or flavors. Enjoy what you love and look for Simply Brand snacks online or at a store near you. This is Here's the Thing. I'm Alec Baldwin, and today my guest is the legendary actor Malcolm McDowell. There are performances, whether it's Humphrey Bogart in Treasure of Sierra Madre, Brando in Waterfront, ah. Meryl Streep in a, a variety of films, you know, great actors and things. There are films in which you realize, I often say, and I've learned this as I've developed projects for me to be in, we'll reach the point where I feel the spirit of the character or the potential spirit of the character or the, uh, of the piece, my fondness for the piece, leave my body. Mm-hmm. And I'll say to them, let's move on and cast someone else. We've been talking about this fucking thing for two years now. Yeah. And I realize there's very rarely, almost never, one actor who can play a part. And of course, you are the one actor who could play that part. One of the greatest, most iconic performances. When you first saw that movie, when he screened that movie for you, how did you feel? In total shock. You know, it wasn't till later that I realized that really, it wasn't just the performance. It was a collaboration with Stanley. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, all of it. I mean, obviously, and, and you know, people go, do you like him? And I go, have you seen the performance? Have you seen the film? I loved him. Are you kidding me? It's one of the great love affairs between an actor and a director. I mean, of course, I take the piss out of him. But the thing was, he never understood, like I did, because I'd had Lindsay Anderson. He never really bothered about 
performance, about how a scene would progress, you know, like, like a graph on a patient's bed, you know, in a, you know, so that you come on here and then you lay back here. Like music, like, like music. Exactly. He'd say, I need more from you here, Malk. I mean, this, that's boring. I went, good. Boring is good here. <laughs> Give them a time to get their breath. Yes. yes. Now, the response to the film, I mean, the film is, I always joke and say now that, that Clockwork Orange is actually Tarantino's first film. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've gone so much further. But back then, people were really, really overwhelmed by this film. Oh, my God. I mean, they just, and, and there, was so much, there was so much controversy. How did you handle that? With a sort of amusement, you know. I mean, for whatever, you know, the film is very complex, as you know, and it's yeah. about many things. Mainly the freedom of man to choose and to choose whether he becomes an immoral man or a moral one, but it's choice. And that's what Burgess is saying, basically. Of course, you know, he's put it in the most incredible settings and all the rest of it with wonderful language. And But, you know, let me just tell you, so I'm standing outside getting in my car after having dinner with Stanley. This is before we should. And we're just chit-chatting. And he said... Um, I'm going, yeah, what are we going to wear? He goes, I don't know. What have you got? I went, what have I got? I said, Stanley, this is a futuristic movie, isn't it? I mean, we're in the future here. What do you think? I've got something in my, you know, in my wardrobe that's sort of going to be uh, going to fit that. I went, the only thing I've got in the car is my cricket gear. And he goes, well, let me see it. I went, really? So I get out my cricket white and he goes, and what's that? I went, well, that's a protector. He goes, wear it on the outside. That's wow. where the whole, it's wow. all the whites. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my and then oh my I God. found a yard of eyelash at Bieber store. So I bought that as fun to show him. It was this long, you know, this, yeah. it was great. And when I gave it to him, he said, oh, that's great. And he looked at it, he looked at me and he goes, put it on. I went, really? Uh, I don't think I know how to. So we got, you know, glued it. He took pictures. <laughs> and the next day he called me and he said, one eyelash is great because you see your face and you know there's something wrong, but you don't know what it is. I went, okay, great. And that's how that all came into being. That shot at the milk bar is like an eyelash oh, yeah. commercial. They yeah. start in on your face and they pull yeah. back, pull back and you and your mates there. Now, Clockwork also, it's not like it's a star-studded cast no. in terms of like many Hollywood films, and yet it's filled with unforgettable performances. Oh. There are actors in this film, I want to just say that when you watch Clockwork Orange... Aubrey Morris? I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> Aubrey Morris. Oh, God. I mean, if you knew how much the guy had gotten into my vascular system for years afterward, yeah. I would turn to my friends. We would just do Aubrey Morris. Yeah. Regardless Brilliant. of the context. I'd look at my friends and say... Oh, so you didn't want to go downtown and have dinner, yes? You'd rather <laughs> stay uptown and eat something nearby, yes? And we, and we, we would just do Aubrey Mars. It worked anywhere, anywhere, where you wanted to have like a, like a tinge of confrontation with someone. Philip Stone. Oh, I cast him because he was doing uh, Lindsay Anderson play, and I love Philip, and I told Kubrick, he's got to play my dad. 
So he had him in and went, oh, yeah. And then he, he did also that he was in The Shining, too. Now, who's the guy, though, that played the boarder that lived with your parents when that great scene when you come home? Oh, he's brilliant. Clive Francis. Joe. Yes. <laughs> what you love is Philip Stone is such a great actor. Just yeah. the pain. Oh. And when he turns to you and says, well, that's Joe. Yeah. That's, that's Joe. Joe. He's Joe on, lives here he, now. He lives here now. And then mum starts boo-hooing. You <laughs> <laughs> go, it's all right, love. It's all right. Now, let me ask you this before we get to other later things. Who the fuck directed Caligula? Was there a director? Oh, yes. There was a director, and he was um, an extraordinary man, actually. Very radical. The problem is, of course, that the man paying for it was Guccione. Right. Who... Um, thought that he had, you know, great taste and all the rest of it. That's debatable. I mean, but in the end of the day, of course, he did put up the money, but he put it up because of Gore sold it to him. Right. The fact is, when I read Gore Vidal's script, I thought it was really rather amateurish. Right. And you're referring to Tinto Brass. Yeah, Tinto Brass, yeah. Now, in more recent years, what is something you've done that really excited you, that you were really, really... Oh, I played this um, amazing serial killer in Russia, in Soviet Union. It's called Ivalenko. Evil with Enko on the end. Ivalenko. That was a, an amazing thing because I didn't really want to do it, but it was a friend of mine and I'd urged him to write the script, then urged him to direct it. And through some extraordinary piece of luck, he actually got the money and I went, when they called me, he goes, well, Mark, we're shooting. I have the money. I went, what? No, really? I, I think I'm busy then. Oh, my God. So anyway, it was amazing, really, to be faced with this person who I despised and was a not only a pedophile, serial killer, cannibal. I mean, you, I mean, just add anything on this one. So how to play through that minefield was so exciting. Wow. It was interesting that I realized I'm going to have to do a, a Larry Olivier on this one and just <laughs> find an external thing to take me through. And, and that's how I did it. It was really interesting. But anyway, um, I like the television. You know, the, um, Mozart in the Jungle, I had fun yeah. doing that. I had a lot of fun doing Entourage. You know, and uh, I love taking the piss out of Piven. You know, who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to finish with this. You know, I'll never forget, some people accuse me of hitting the appreciation button too heavy-handedly, but uh, I can't help it. When I did the movie Hunt for Red October, they had cast Sean Connery, and then he got sick. Yeah. And he had all kinds of throat problems, and they said, uh, uh, he, they said he's not coming. And uh, when, I, when I arrived to work, they said to, to start rehearsing, they said, I didn't even know they had courted him. And they said, well, so-and-so, and I'll be kind and I won't mention who, so-and-so, another famous European actor is going to play the part. Yeah. And then they get a phone call from Sean's agent. They said, Sean's better. He's feeling better. And he's ready to come back to work. So Paramount, which I think has a certain gift in this department. Oh, yes. They call up the other actor and they said, now, what were the dates you said were a hard no that you're going to be directing this other project of yours. You said there were dates that you couldn't shoot with us because you must be on this set somewhere in Europe and you must be doing this thing. And he gives the dates and they went, ah, too bad. 
Exactly. Because we had to move the schedule to exactly those dates. Those are exactly the dates <laughs> that we're going to be shooting. Now, we're so sorry. And thank you. And best of luck to you. Goodbye. And they got rid of him. And they turned to me and they said, Sean is back. And I was so excited because I love Sean. Yeah. But as John McTiernan, the director, explained this all to me, I said to myself, I go, you know, I was just aghast at how Hollywood really worked on that level. And these were top tier people. Oh, yeah. And my friend turned to me and he goes, he goes, God didn't want that guy to play the lead role in the movie. <laughs> God wanted Sean to play the lead role in that movie. It's what God wanted. <laughs> yeah. And I look at you, and I look at you, and I go, God wanted you to play Alex DeLarge. He didn't want anybody else to play that part. You had to play that part. <laughs> and when you look back at that, did you ever imagine that it would be that indelible with other actors? No, but I knew that I was doing something which I, I which probably was new territory, certainly yeah. for me. Yeah. But, you know, to be out there, I had decided to play it with a style. My influences, if you can call them that, besides, of course, always Jimmy Cagney, always, but Olivier doing Richard III, and also the language, which is, of course, Shakespearean. So that was all easy. It was difficult to find, you know, the style exactly. But there again, it was Lindsay Anderson who gave me the key. Yeah. Because when I said, Lindsay, I, I, I suddenly panicked. You know, I've got a, a week to go. I've been with Kubrick for eight months, and he hasn't once talked about the character. And I said, well, what do you think? And he goes, that's why I cast you, okay? That's why I don't talk about that. I went, oh, excuse me. I thought you were the fucking director. Oh. Stanley is brilliant thinking on his feet. And if he sees that the movie's not going down the path that he thought it was, he would swing and go another way, you know. Listen, um, when I came up with Singing in the Rain, he changed the whole thing about that being the key. You know, Singing in the Rain is the key to uh, how they discover him and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, I knew working on it that something magical was sort of happening, but I didn't really want to dissect it because I yeah, didn't yeah, want it yeah, to go yeah, away. Yeah. You know? yeah. It was an instinct. You know what it's like when you're in the zone. Yeah. You're in the zone. And so it doesn't matter what they do. There were certain ad libs, but I didn't ad lib very much. But, you know, for instance, at the end, when the minister is cutting up my steak, now he has this long speech, which basically wraps up the movie. And I could see out of my periphery vision Stanley was bored, and I knew he would start cutting, you know. So to hurry the actor up, I just sort of went... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know what you did. Yeah, you <laughs> we know. all know what you did. <laughs> okay, but the reason was I wanted to hurry his ass up, you know, because yeah. otherwise he was going to lose yeah. his feet. It's a metronome. And I saw Stanley stick a handkerchief in his mouth and turn away... And I saw him heaving shoulders, and he was so, and tears were streaming down his face. He was laughing so hard. You knew what Stanley wanted the other actors to do as well. Yeah. And tried your best to provoke that. Let me just ask one last question, which is, as much as the part is this seminal role, it's one of the greatest acting roles in film history ever, ever, ever. You are so indelible. 
I have all of Kubrick's library downloaded to my computer, and sometimes I can't watch it because it's such a rich meal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you gotta you gotta eat the whole thing whole. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. But but have you as much as you've loved it and benefited from it? Did you ever hate it as well? Oh, I, I did. I, for the first ten years, I was so sick of it, and you know they wanted me to just play the same part over and over. Yeah. And uh, I kept walking away from those. But then I suddenly realized, what the hell am I doing? It's made my life, transformed yeah. my life. Are you yeah. kidding? I should get down on my knees and say thank you all the time, which I do now. And, you know, I sort of remember I can go back to the actual set and the actual feeling of, you know, talking to Stanley. And I was basically all the time, it was my job just to tease him. And um, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of my relationship with him is me just pulling his leg a lot, you know. Well, everybody wants to make a great film. And you want the work that you do to contribute to what makes it great. Of course. And those chances, and if you make more than one great one, if you're Hanks or someone like that who's made, oh, yeah. who his acting has driven, Spencer Tracy, all the greats, Bogart, Brando, people who they're the Nicholson, of course, where the power of their acting has made the films great films. Yeah. The thing is that what you benefit from, you, you almost, it's almost impossible to get there if you don't have the script and the director. Right. And you had the great fortune of having the script and you had the great fortune of having the director, but they had the great fortune of having you. Well, thank you. It really is one of the 25 greatest film acting performances in history. I mean, you just, when you watch it, you go, oh my God, look at this fucking guy. <laughs> it's like you think he's going to fly through the roof and just take off like a rocket through the fucking roof of the set. You know what I mean? That's how alive you are. You're the most alive performance I've ever seen in my life, ever. Thank you. My love to you, and thanks for doing this with me. Alec, you know how much I love you, my friend. You too. All the best. The unforgettable Malcolm McDowell. He's still hard at work and celebrating the 50th anniversary of his career-making role in A Clockwork Orange. If you haven't seen it lately or you haven't seen it at all, I recommend you don't delay. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Sarah Ivry, and Kerry Donahue. Our editor is Zach McNeese with help from Justin Wright, and our engineer is Frank Imperial. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that returns with a new season investigating a tragedy that took place in a small Ohio town where the massive farmhouse of a wealthy family erupted in flames. All four residents died, 
but not because of the fire. My brother says, Carol, something's up. There is too much blood. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.